Hi, this is Welcome to Self, caring for the human in the therapist chair. And I'm your host, Dr. Haley D. Quinn, fellow human, clinical psychologist, supervisor and trainer. Welcome to Self is a place where you can come and learn ways to elevate your own care and compassion. A place to rest, be soothed, and at times maybe gently challenged to think about yourself and your practice. A place to remember that you are human first and choose the helping profession as just one of the roles in your life. My aim is that this is a place of soothing, comfort, nourishment, growth and nurture. A place where you can also welcome yourself. Welcome to another episode. Thanks for joining me. I'd like to thank Claire Elizabeth 42 for her lovely feedback. Claire said, This is exactly what those of us in helping professions need. Thank you for noticing and meeting that need, Haley. From the first episode, this offers a space of rest, self nurturing, and guidance from a wonderfully compassionate human. Wow, thanks for taking the time to comment, Claire. It really is appreciated. This episode is a longer one. I contemplated splitting it into two parts, but figured you can pause it wherever you like and come back to it or listen to the whole episode in one go if that suits you. I really hope you enjoy this one as much as I did, chatting with my dear friend, mentor, and the founder of Compassion Focused Therapy, Professor Paul Gilbert, OBE. Whilst he probably doesn't need much introduction, as many people will know of him and his many accomplishments, He certainly deserves a warm introduction. Paul Gilbert OBE is a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Derby and honorary visiting professor at the University of Queensland here in Australia. Until his retirement from the NHS in 2016, he was a consultant clinical psychologist for over 40 years. He has researched evolutionary approaches to psychopathology with a special focus on mood, shame, and self-criticism in various mental health difficulties, for which compassion-focused therapy was developed. He was made a Fellow of the British Psychological Society in 1993, President of the BABCP from 2002 to 2004, and was a member of the first British government's NICE guidelines for depression. In 2006, he established the Compassionate Mind Foundation as an international charity with the mission statement to promote well-being through the scientific understanding and application of compassion. There are now a number of sister foundations in other countries. Paul was awarded an OBE by the Queen in March 2011 for his services to mental health. He established and is the director of the Centre for Compassion Research and Training at Derby University in the UK. He has written and edited 21 books and over 250 papers and book chapters, with many on compassion. And his latest book is called Living Like Crazy. It is my great pleasure to welcome Professor Paul Gilbert 
to Welcome to Self. Paul, well, this is an absolute pleasure for me. You've been such an important influence in my work and my life, for which I'm extremely grateful. And it's really lovely to be chatting to you from the other side of the world. It would be much nicer if we could be chatting with you and Jean over here, and hopefully it won't be too long before we can see you in Australia again. But could we start with perhaps you telling us a little bit about your life and work? And maybe what have been some of the highlights for you? Um, well, yes, in terms of my life, I was born in the Gambia and then spent quite a lot of time in Africa. And then was sent back to a boarding school in England, which wasn't such good fun. And uh, did a degree in economics in 73 uh, and learned a lot about model building and then decided, oh, that's OK. But I actually wanted to be a psychologist. So in those days, it was really quite easy to transfer. So in 1973, I was very lucky enough to get a position in Sussex. Now, that's kind of interesting because it was rather strange how it happened because Sussex did a changeover course, which meant that they would take people who hadn't got their primary uh, qualification in degree in psychology, and mine was economics. They didn't always take economics students because it was mainly for people like uh, physiologists and biologists and zoologists. So when I applied, I got rejected. And um, then when I went to, um, I went to Arabia then because my father was there and uh, then got a phone call to say, oh, somebody's dropped out the course. Would you like to fly back for an interview? So <laughs> I did. And strangely enough, I got onto the MSc at, in Sussex and um, that started my psychology um, career. And subsequently, I discovered that um, the professor there was a bipolar and he had, was having this slightly manic episode. So they said, look, his staff said to him, look, we've, we've, we're short of a student. What do you think? And he said, oh, I don't know, get an economist. They're, they're all right. <laughs> <laughs> it was really kind of luck, you know. Mm. Um, so anyway, so and that was a very biological orientation to into psychology. Uh, it was a lot of um, classical conditioning, animal learning, and a lot of physiology. So that set me up with that sort of interest. So the economics set me up with an interest in model building, and then this introduction into psychology set me up with an interest in really understanding brain processes and how body and brain are changed by the environment. And classical conditioning is all about the mm. way bodies and brains are changed by the environment. And so then uh, from there, I worked for... a yeah, uh, as a night nurse trying to pay for it all uh, on an acute psychiatric unit. And that was interesting because it was on Brighton and Brighton's the south coast, you know, hippie town. And so we used to have in the summer, a lot of people come down from London. They'd get completely smashed out on drugs on the on the on the, on the beach, have psychotic breakdowns, poor sorts. And then we would bring them into the acute unit. So I, I saw some pretty, mm. pretty difficult things. And um so, but it was a great, it was a great uh, uh, introduction to understanding the, the pain and sometimes the terror of uh, mental health difficulties. Yeah. And then from there, I uh, went to Edinburgh University and studied with Ivy Blackburn, did a PhD on depression. Uh, look, again, it was looking at the psychophysiological, it was looking at people's physiological reactions to success and failure and finding that depressed people responded to threats in the same way that anxious people did but they didn't respond to positive events that physiologically were sort of non-responsive and that sort of 
went on then, uh, other researchers had shown that depression is primarily a problem of anhedonia, the lack of positive affect. You can have very high negative affect, but positive affect is very tricky. Um, <clears throat> and that really set me up with a, because Ivy Blackburn did the first uh, cognitive therapy training in uh, the UK. Um, and Tim Beck would come over to the UK and train us. And I was lucky enough to be part of that because I was a PhD student. So we used to get out to Oxford and meet with Paul Sarkovskis, David Clark and all that lot and Beck would sort of help us and show us various things. And um, <clears throat> so that was a fantastic opportunity. Um, and then after uh, Edinburgh, I was originally going to go to uh, take a job in Stanford, but that all fell through for reasons that wasn't anything to do with me. It was to do with the financial department there. Um, so I was le left a bit high and dry. So I managed to get onto a qualification doing clinical training in Norwich, which was in-service training. So in those days, we were just used to go to different hospitals and we were literally taught on the job. Mm. So very, very clinically orientated, spent a lot of time with clients. And incidentally, when I was in Edinburgh, it was on a specialist medical research unit, uh, which was uh, took all of the really difficult cases from all over Scotland and the north of England. Mm -hmm. And I had an office on that ward. And the, the professor said, look, just spend a lot of time talking to people, getting familiar with the, you know, the way in which individuals mm -hmm. are. Actually, so I had a, a lot of time, really, as a three, three years there, just literally spending time on the ward, having coffee and talking to clients about their lives and everything. And again, that was a fantastic setup um, for trying to understand um, depression as a multi-component, multi-difficult process and why we've always been interested in the body. So then my first book post uh, um, Edinburgh was a book called Depression from Psychology to Brain State because on the MRC unit, they were all into the physiology. They were doing drug research and everything. And if you didn't really understand anything about neurochemistry, you didn't have anybody to talk to over lunch, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> the young psychiatrists there, uh, my age, all doing their stuff. They draw these things out on napkins about how synapses work and everything. But um, the point about it was that we would have discussions about whether these brain changes were the result of some underlying disease process or whether they were all psychosocially induced. Mm. And uh, so that was a lot of the stuff I was interested in. But how do you change physiological processes with, with psychological social processes? And uh, learned helplessness had come out in 75. There was quite a lot of work on attachment theory. Attachment disruptions causes quite major shifts in brain states. So that really uh, was my ground, theoretical grounding as a brain state theorist. And to be honest with you, I've always been a brain state theorist. I mean, people say, oh, we're a third wave cognitive behavior therapy, but we've never been that. We've always been an evolved biopsychosocial approach, but we use a lot of cognitive therapy because it's so, it's got a lot of evidence behind it, you know. So mm -hmm. that's my my background. And then from Norwich, spent 10 years in Norwich, uh, just basically, uh, again, I had an office on, on an acute unit mm -hmm. and uh, so a lot of very poorly people. And... Uh, and then we came to Derby and took over, head of department of um, mental health here. And then later I became head of the Derbyshire um, psychology department for a few for a while. And then packed that in and dropped down a level and set up a research unit with the university here. And we ran an international mental health research unit and published a lot of stuff. And so that was me really. And then I retired when I was 
65, which was five years ago. Yeah, wow. So you've had a really varied and interesting career. And you you seem to but you seem to have missed out one rather large bit that you are the founder of Compassion Focus Therapy. Oh yeah, I remember. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was all the background. So and the other thing that was I was very lucky about was because when I was in Norwich. You could do different trainings. So I did two years psychodynamic group therapy training. Every Wednesday night, we'd turn up and do all this stuff. And then I did four years in a Jungian day hospital. Jungian stuff, archetypal stuff has always been something I've been very interested in, the concept of the, you know, the persona, the hero, and so on. Yeah. So I had all that stuff, which is you don't get that so much these days. People don't have an opportunity to have a, a range of ways of working. And actually seeing a Jungian therapist at work, um, working their group working the group and working doing the therapy and actually seeing it you know day in day out well it's not day in day out because it wasn't there every day but yeah so what happened then was um really working within the cognitive well you know this well of course but working within the cognitive model and discovering that people could certainly generate alternative thoughts to their unhelpful ones you know depressed people typically see themselves as worthless failures and defeated you know, Tim Beck had talked about the negative triad, negative view of the world, the self, and the future. So they could identify they would have negative thoughts around those things. And then you'd invite them to stand back and generate alternatives. And clients could do that. And it was really quite important if they could do that, because that would break up the loops, because depressed people get into ruminative loops. You know, mm. But uh, it didn't always produce emotion change. And so one day I asked this one person who'd been a multiple... Uh, suicide person uh, was very poorly um, who had been adopted and thought she wasn't lovable and wasn't really wanted but she had a good family and good mm. relationship with the husband she had friends she had down had had down a job as a, a solicitor's secretary and so on so she could see all that she said yes I know this is true Paul I know it's true that actually my husband loves me so but I just still feel really unlovable I shouldn't really be here just feel very bad she had a bipolar illness actually um so one day i said to her well, how do you hear this in your mind then you mm. know when you're looking at these alternative thoughts and you you recognize that you have a husband who really cares about you, you've got some lovely children you held down this job just speak them out as as, as you mm. hear them in your mind and so she said to she was embarrassed actually she said well as i actually hear them I, yeah i said yeah as you actually hear them. she said okay and she said, go on, you're doing cognitive therapy, aren't you? You've got a husband who cares about you. You've got children. You've held on a job. Yeah. <laughs> what is that together? It was very much like that. And that was that was my first shock in cognitive uh, in CFT, really, is the recognition that actually the hostility and the criticism was being carried in the emotion, not in the uh, cognitive content. And so I started to ask other clients just to speak it out. And again, some of them were kind of embarrassed, but there was this real either coldness to it or hostility to it. Um, So the obvious thing, well, obviously was just try to warm it up. And um, so I wrote quite a lot of stuff on warming up cognitive therapy in the early days um, because you hadn't called it compassion and in the early days. And then the second shock was really discovering that A, clients wouldn't do it. They didn't want to do it. They found it very difficult to do it. And the third shock was that when you did start to do it, because you were opening up a motivational system, then whatever toxic memories was in that system, uh, 
they would be hit by that. So they didn't find compassion particularly helpful mm-hmm. in the early days when you work with them. And in a way, I felt a little bit uh, sad because it uh, meant I was quite naive because I was a classically conditioned therapist, right? I believed in body changes associated with stuff. So we know that any motivational system where you have toxic memories will change the way that system works. If you go on holiday, for example, you love holidays, aren't they wonderful? And then one year you get badly beaten up. The next year you think about holidays, you're not going to remember all the good times, what will hit you. So if you've got toxic memories, abuse, neglect, or whatever in your caring system, then you start to open up that caring system, you're not going to be washed through, well, oh, isn't this wonderful? And I'm so kind to myself. Actually, what you get, you get hit by remembering fear. You become frightened. You remember sadness you feel lonely you're trying to do compassion and actually feeling you're more lonely not less you're feeling more frightened not less and it wasn't until we kind of twigged this that we realized that the first blocks and resistances were the therapy because Mm. uh, many of our clients um, their caring systems were toxic i mean they were just full of this trauma and neglect and sadness memories so that became the basis of then understanding the process of fears, blocks, and resistances. You have to work through that. If, you, if that mm-hmm. system isn't working, right, it's partly because it's toxic. And so mm-hmm. you have to clean it up. You have to detoxify it. And that can be quite tricky, as you well know. Yeah. So, I mean, that is a big part of compassion-focused therapy, isn't it? And, and you've developed something which I think many, many people will be very grateful for, um, therapists and clients. I know it's been life-changing for me literally I don't say that lightly at all um and fears blocks and resistances are a big part of CFT so I'm wondering how did you manage not only the fears blocks and resistances or FBRs as we call them of your clients at the time but also of your own when it came to you working with compassion and self-compassion yeah, well, it's interesting, you know, because a couple of things. When I wrote Human Nature and Suffering in the 80s and wanted to get a really evolutionary approach to motivational systems and move, you know, I can't, therapy is important, but Human Nature and Suffering was all about evolution and motivation. I had a lot of people said, don't do that because you'll ruin your career, you know. That's all, <laughs> that's all reductionist and blah, blah, blah. So, okay. And then in the 90s, when I started to start talking about compassion, I said, oh, don't do that. It'll ruin your career. Um <laughs> And we I think they were a little bit wrong there. <laughs> we set off, we had papers going up and things and getting these horrible reviews back, you know, like all therapy is compassion. What the hell are you talking about? Um, so that that was a little bit tricky in, in the early days, really, of trying to get, get, that, get that going and sort of holding firm to this thing. And constantly, you know, when we do, like we want to do um, workshops and businesses they say oh don't use the word compassion no no you gotta stick to it and gradually I think people now over the years have sort of come around to this issue so that was a that was an issue really and I talked to Jean about you know should we change it you know should we make it some change it make it pro-social should we call it pro-social therapy it's like so that was a that was kind of just holding firm to the belief that in the end concept of compassion would be okay if we could root it in the scientific basis which meant it was a motive which meant that it had two components to it which was the ability to engage and the ability to respond so so that worked out okay (laughs) yeah I'm so glad that you did stick to it and and keep pursuing with that because it's um 
Yeah, it absolutely worked out okay. <laughs> so when you were engaged in clinical practice, what did you find were the biggest challenges that you faced in taking care of yourself as a practitioner? Because I know, particularly at the moment in the world, I think practitioners are struggling quite a lot. There's high levels of burnout and there's great demand because of the pandemic on services. Um, so what were some of the things that you found were most challenging? Well, I think in a way I've been quite lucky because uh, partly because of my background and boarding school university, I've been, to be absolutely honest with you, a little bit self-reliant. I've been slightly that way inclined. Um, I remember um, Wendy Dryden saying to me, you're a maverick, you don't like following the crowd of being in the group, do you? <laughs> want to be something good I, I think he had a point about that so I've never been a personal self-critic I mean I get disappointed but not really because I don't not really interested in that sort of thing and I think one of the things that undermines therapists is self-criticism yeah. I mean self-criticism in therapists the fear that you don't know enough you're not doing it right you know what's the right thing to be doing yeah you know, trying to follow you know it's almost painting by numbers what are the numbers what are the numbers that really does burn you out one of the great things when I trained was uh, doing counseling and stuff like that, where you just became very curious. You know, you weren't mm. trying to fix people. And I love C CBT, but CBT has become very formulaic and that, you know, there's a formula and you've got to follow the manual and all that stuff. And that really, I think, puts a lot of pressure on therapy. If you're trained in that, it puts a lot of pressure on therapists you to find out to do it right. Whereas my view is that just get to understand your client, right? Just, yeah. just be interested in them. Be curious, you know, don't try and fix them. Just be curious about that. So getting people off of trying to do it right, I think, is really important. So that that's what I would say is a key thing. The second yeah. thing is really is recognizing that with compassion, you've probably heard about this uh, to do. Sometimes it's called compassionate fatigue. Sometimes it's called burnout. But if you only stick with being empathic to suffering mm. all the time, you will get burnt out, right? Yeah. You have to be able to touch it in order then to move towards resolution and working out what is going to be helpful. And that process of discussing what's going to be helpful with your client and helping them work through their own process and you offering them some ideas about the nature of the mind, you're offering them ideas about how they can use their body through breathing exercises is really important. So I think... And the other thing is how you yourself tolerate intense emotional pain. I mean, mm. in a way, psychotherapy is a funny sort of um, profession because uh, day in, day out, you're listening to emotional pain, aren't you, yeah. really? Uh, I mean, you could say GPs are a bit the same, but, you know, they've got drugs and things. They can do stuff, uh, quite miraculous stuff, actually. So... So how do you deal with hearing stories of emotional pain? Mm. How do you deal with stories of despair? How do you deal with stories of hopelessness? Like with COVID now, how do you deal with stories of people coming to you say, look, you know, I lost my father and he, I just loved him and I couldn't say goodbye and I knew that he was dying and he wasn't able to breathe. Can you imagine what it's like not being able to breathe? Can you imagine? Sorry about that. Um, can you imagine... I should have put the phones up. I do apologize. Um, can you imagine uh, what that would be like? And the same with COVID workers, you know, I mean, they've gone through just horrors, really. So how, how do you deal with that, right? And, and yeah. the number of things, one is actually trying to make sure you have a peer group. 
that you have people around you who are in the same profession that you can talk to yeah. about your cases. One of the, one of the ways in which you can easily get uh, burnt out is being isolated. You're an isolated therapist in private practice. Don't really have anybody to talk to. Mm. You can't really talk to your family because they're not clinicians. They don't quite understand it in the depth that you do. So social support, I think, is being, and I've been very lucky in the sense that I've had a number of colleagues uh, from different persuasions, psychodynamic as, as well as cognitive and so on, who I've been able to talk to and just phone up and say, you know, I've got this person, what do you think? And it's just... Yeah. This person's really in, you know, when, I, when I've had people who have suicided on me and, of course, working with severe depression, that happens. You know, I've had people mm. that would go to and cry on, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's crucial. So they, they, that, that's a key thing, right? Be careful about being formulaic, always worried about are you doing the right mm. thing. All you can do is in therapy at any moment, try and do the best you can. That's all you can do. Uh, and also when you're struggling, uh, remember, well, not even when you're struggling, but also as a professional, have people around you recognize that psychotherapy is a very special type of thing. It's unusual. Mm. It's abnormal. You're doing something yeah. incredibly abnormal, listening to the pain of strangers day in, day out. Yeah. Don't take it like you're kind of selling baked beans because you're not. Okay? Yeah. And the only way you're going to support support yourself is having people around you you can chat to. Yeah, I think one of the the things you once said to me, and I hold this in mind all the time when I'm working with with clients, is help your client understand themselves. Yeah. It's not about me understanding the client; it's about me helping the client understand themselves. And I think for me, that takes the pressure off. I'm not there to fix anything. No. I'm there to help the client understand themselves, and that that was always really helpful. And I think. As well, you, your point about connecting, actually having a peer group, supervision, the different things to connect to is really, really important, especially for solo practitioners in private practice. But another thing you touched on, and it comes to another question I wanted to ask you, which I think I know the short answer to, but well, <laughs> is when you talked about being close to suffering and I think both as a practitioner and as a human being, how important do you think it is that we are willing to tolerate the discomfort of connecting to the parts of ourselves that we find challenging, the parts of ourselves that we don't like or we're perhaps ashamed of? And how do you do that for yourself? Yeah, I mean, it's a wonderful question, um, Hayley. Uh, there are a couple of things. I mean, you know, you, we were talking about fears, blocks, and resistance to, to compassion. And, you know, I've always been, I've learned so much from my clients, really, my patients mm. have been just wonderful teachers if you let them teach you, right? Yeah. So when we started this with one of the first people, when, when they begin to open, the amount of suffering is will just rock you, okay? The, when they really start to perhaps sob for the love they never mm. had, the parent they always wanted. And there's this deep yearning. You get, get in touch with this deep yearning to be loved and connected. I mean, it will move you. And I mm. remember uh, one of our clients really just tearing up in the therapy and so on and so on. And also the fact that it went on for a while, I was starting to get really anxious about this because it, <laughs> I felt I'd become a, a stimulus for crying because 
you know, I'd go and get her from the waiting room and say, how are you doing? No, I'm doing okay. And then she'd yeah. sit down and she'd say two sentences and then yeah. things would open. So learning to tolerate that is very, very important. And your ability to be okay with your own profound grief, yeah. I find important. I think for me, one of the things that's been very important is for me to be able to tolerate my own rage against life. Yeah. Because, uh, and I've talked to you about this, because I think when you stand back from it and you see the immense suffering of life, the whole predator system, the way all, you know, um, the, 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 all life depends upon eating another life of one kind or another. I mean, you're very plant-based, but, you know, uh, I'm not all creatures are. Um, this pandemic, uh, you know, it's terrible diseases that are racked through animals mm. and humans, right? Yeah. People say, oh, isn't life wonderful? I've never found it like that. I mean, we can have wonderful experiences for sure. Yeah. Um, but the actual process of gene replication and the way it's done. So for me, that's always been a big issue. And um, I, I've got to just be aware that part of what drives compassion is this real anger at the suffering in life and that it's, yeah. you know, seeing how people die, seeing dementias, seeing cancers, seeing yeah. that, you know, many people die in pain. You think about how people used to die before uh, anesthetics and so on and so on. When my father died, watching him die of cancer was, you think, I thought to myself, God, a hundred years ago, this would have been a nightmare. Yeah. You know? So yeah. that's, that's, that's my big issue. Yeah. Um, in terms of my other issues, um, how do I go? I, my my other problem is that I overload myself and then I get frustrated. So I take mm. on too many things, get time pressure. <laughs> get... Really, Paul? I find that hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> so I have an irritable side. Um, <laughs> that's why I love coming to Australia because I kind of slow down a little bit and I'm with wonderful people like you that I, with, you know, I love and everything. So I have a wonderful time. So that's nice for me. So those are the things really dealing with my own deep sadness for stuff in my life, dealing with my raging about the way life is and the incomprehensibility of some people's ways yeah. of seeing the world. Um, mm. The awful callousness that we have from our leaders, actually. Mm. I mean, so yeah. I go into that one, but, uh, and that yeah. actually, if we could only learn how to develop and cultivate a compassionate mind, the world, we could actually address so much stuff, right? I mean, yeah. you think about the fact that, you know, even, even 50 years ago or 20 years ago, this pandemic would have killed a lot of people. There's no way that we would have been able to have developed a, virus, a vaccine so quickly. We've mm. only done that because of human knowledge. Science is the crucial. Science is the answer to just about every problem there is, I think. But as part of that science is understanding our minds and how to bring out the best rather than the worst in us. So yeah. what a different issues. world. What a yeah. different world it would be. But, but would I often be, talk to my supervisees about the importance of us being willing, I won't say being okay with, but being willing, being willing to sit with our own discomfort yeah. and shame and whatever it is about ourselves that we don't like or don't like to necessarily go near. Um, I remember, you know, conversations with yourself about if we're not willing to do that, how can we walk our clients to the places that they need to go to? We've got to be able to get in touch with our and, and yeah. tolerate our own distress and have a way of looking after our own distress yeah. so that we can do that for our clients. Yeah. 
Yeah. So there are two things about that. I mean, and we've talked about this. One is don't judge it, right? It's, mm. it's got the concept of non-judgment or acceptance. Because look, all of us, all living things are, are built, right? No animal, no elephant chose to be an elephant, no giraffe, yeah. a giraffe, no lion, a lion, or a prey, you know, antelope is prey, chose to be the prey of lions, did it really? Um Humans never chose to be human. So we're all built and we've all got these things which are capable of doing good and bad. You know, we've all got capacities for rage and vengeance and all that stuff and all kinds of strange fantasies because we're built like that. Yeah. You didn't build it. I didn't build it. One of the reasons that people won't tolerate their bad sides is because they over-identify it. They think it's mm-hmm. like about them. No, it's not. It's the way you've been built, right? Yeah. The the thing that's most important about you is your point of consciousness. But what you're conscious of, that's a creation. You didn't do that. So it becomes much easier to tolerate the dark side of the mind when you realize, when you give up your narcissism and believing you have to be an angel, forget all that, you're a human being. Now, if yeah. you'd been born 2,000 years ago in Rome, you'd be going to the games. You'd have slaves, right? Yeah. That, that, that That's the way the culture was. There is no sense of this you see this idea there's an authentic self and a real self that's just illusion there is none of that we are a creation we can become observing of the mind in action and then Mm. choose to try as best we can to bring out the good rather than the bad but we can't blame ourselves for the bad that's just silly yeah (laughs) i think this they over identify you know yeah that's when they get into trouble yeah, I think like you say, when we can when we can accept our humanness, that yeah. can be very freeing. Yeah. It can, I mean, you know, it can lighten the load. That's right, because we talked about this here. So every morning people are, or every day people have to go and have a shit, right? And do you blame yourself for that? Do you say, oh, my God, I'm such a shitty person because I need a shit? No, no, you're built that way. You need yeah. to learn how to do it hygienically, but hang on, I'm having these rage feelings. That means I'm a raging, horrible person. No, 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 you're not. <laughs> you have that potential inside of you, which has been triggered, and now you have to think about what you want to do. Yeah. But don't label yourself as that any more than you'd call yourself a shitty person because you have to lose the loo. It doesn't make any sense. But people do it because they all have this idea there's an authentic self. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you and I have talked about this many times. You know, if I've been kidnapped as a three-day-old baby into a violent drug gang, this poor Gilbert wouldn't exist. A very different one would exist. Yeah. Different genetic, epigenetic profile, different brain. So what's the real one then, this one or that one? Mm. There is no real one. There are just patterns in the mind, and we become aware of those patterns, and then we can begin to start to choose how we want to work those patterns. And that's yeah. the basis of what the Buddha called enlightenment. I think really getting to know our tricky minds, isn't it? Because, you know, you touched on it before about, you know, therapists can become quite caught up in what do I do next and am I doing it right and am I a good enough therapist? And I think when we can really get to know our tricky minds, that can be helpful in that sense as well. That, of course, these things are going to show up, but it's what we do with them when they do. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly the point. And learning to observe. And the more you observe, the more you're able to say, actually, I want to find the dark side. You know, if I have rage, I want to have murderous rage. I don't want wimpy rage. But who wants wimpy rage? <laughs> I want to feel I want to feel proper rage. And then I can be, you know, if I have a car, I want to have a 
fast car. I don't want to have something that only goes 20 miles an hour. You know what I mean? I want to have a <laughs> cool one, you know. So you, you take a different orientation to the dark side. Yeah. So you, you take this slightly more playful. Playfulness is very important in CFT because playfulness is the basis mm. of acceptance, right? Yeah. When you're playing with it, if you're fighting with it, you've got troubles. But if you learn to play with it, it's easier. So, yes, of course, we have dark sides, but don't over-identify with it. But certainly try as best you can not to act it out so we become harmful. Yeah. So I think one of the things that, that can happen, isn't it, that, you know, the threat system gets activated. Oh, my gosh, I, I had this thought, this particular thought that doesn't fit with how I think I should be as a therapist. So yes. now I have to somehow prove that I am a good enough therapist and I'm a nice therapist. So you go into, like, threat-based drive where you're trying to, you know, do all the right things and be the best you can be, which doesn't tend to be that helpful. No, that's um, right. But, but it's what happens, isn't it? It's the way we function as humans. So I think that awareness, that's certainly been the stuff for me in learning about CFT and then really embodying what that means is how I have been able to change the relationship I've got with myself and my thoughts and my tricky mind and not saying I get it right all the time, but it's it's made a huge difference. Um, so thank you. I'll take this opportunity, Paul, to say thank you so much um, because not only has it changed how I operate as a therapist, but it's changed who I am as a human being. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Well, what a wonderful thing for you to say. That's lovely, isn't it? Um, so, so pleased. That's good. Well, you so, see, then you get enthusiastic because then you want other people to kind of experience that too don't you that's yeah oh absolutely um absolutely it's um certainly something for me that I don't mind talking about (laughs) well as you know when I was in my 20s because of what happened uh, things in my early life and um, stuff like that my poor dad was um in the RAF and was quite badly traumatized so he could be a little bit tricky um, to say the least at times um so I had quite a bad depression in my 20s and um but that was also the basis for a lot of learning um you know, about the sense of entrapment and worthlessness and there was always a part of me that was able to say hey, but this is ridiculous what on earth is going on <laughs> I used to have panic attacks I couldn't get to work so I had to take a taxi to the hospital so there I would go having these panic attacks so they have to take a um, taxi to the hospital. And then I've seen patients with panic attacks. And I say, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you afford taxis. Uh, so it was quite, it was a little bit like that. So the, the key thing, if you get this mindful observing aspect, right, don't over-identify. Yeah. I think that has been a revelation within um, psychotherapy of taking the, now I was lucky because, of course, in the 60s I in the 70s, I was all into the Maharishi and uh, Beatles-based um, transcendental med- meditation. I have to say the reason I used to like to go to these groups at university was because all the lovely women went there. I wasn't really interested in transcendental meditation. <laughs> but I did learn a few things. And one of them was the sense of just don't over-identify with the contents of your mind, yeah. right, and to observe it. So that has, that's been really good. And then, of course, people like... Um, uh, Mark Williamson and uh, John Teasdale came along and, and started to develop it into a therapy. Um, but I think that's probably one of the key things of learning to observe yeah. uh, your, your mind without owning it. I mean, own it in the sense of being 
you're not acting, you don't want to bring a bad stuff into the world, but not sort of thinking that there's something about you, right? Yeah. It's not really like that. Yeah. I think for me, the more the more mindful I have become and the more aware has led me to be able to make choices yeah. more effectively. Um, I'm not just at the mercy of my threat system. <laughs> Which I no. think for a long time in my life I was, and I was bouncing around a bit. Um, but yeah, that that sort of ability to increase your awareness, and then that leads you to be able to make choices differently. And in that awareness, in that awareness, there is a compassionate orientation to whatever it is, right? Yeah. So it's not just you know cold awareness. It's a it's an awareness of compassion that you never chose any of this stuff you are a human being you never chose to be a man or a woman it's all been created for you so that is such an important element um, that we become aware without blaming or shaming yeah definitely definitely um my my warmth towards myself is very different to what my critical self was like for a long long time yeah Um, and I think that that piece in CFT where we would speak to clients around, you know, you just find yourself here, you're in the flow of life and the tricky mind, I think can be such a valuable piece in itself um, Mm. and really de-shaming. And then you you can't unknow that. It's like, oh, that's right. I didn't choose my experiences. I didn't choose to be born um, as I am. I, I didn't choose a lot of the things that happened in my life. And then even some of the things I did choose in my life are because of the experiences I had that I didn't choose yeah um so yeah I think it's a really beautiful framework for life I think so you know and the point about it is people say oh yeah but I like this relation I did choose to marry that person or I could have chosen that whatever Mm. but again what do you mean by that I mean how much did you really understand your mind how much did you understand that there were unconscious processes at work that made those choices how aware of you were you of what was driving your emotions and of course when people sit down think about that they realize well no not really well you can't be until you've learned how to observe your mind and understand your mind um it's like you know People with now obesity, how much did they know that sugars and carbohydrates were the thing to avoid? Mm-hmm. But they didn't know that. So they're, they're eating what they think is okay food. You know, they're snacking a lot on chocolates and stuff like that, not realizing. So you don't realize what's going on, right? Um, so only if you know, and, and why do we have a profession called psychology? Because it's not easy to understand the mind, you know. Yeah. Why do we have medicine? Because although you have a body, you don't actually know how it works. Yeah. You don't actually know how your heart works, how your liver works. You need a science for that. You don't actually know how your mind works. We need a science for that. And that's called psychology or psychotherapy, right? And the mm. science has shown us that it doesn't work the way we think it does. Mm. So mm. these are profoundly important questions, I think, that you're putting uh, Haley, that you know, even when people think, "Oh, they did make that choice," no, not really. Mm. <laughs> if, yeah. if I went to the Roman games when I was a Roman and said, "Well, I made that choice," well, not really, because would I make that choice today? No, I certainly wouldn't. So, yeah. what? Who's making the choice then? Yeah. Hmm, interesting, isn't it? Really. Yeah. So I want to change tack a little bit and just sort of ask about, obviously, COVID over in the UK 
has been affecting you on a greater level than here, although a number of our states have been impacted badly um, by COVID. How has COVID impacted you managing your own well-being? And what's been your sort of favorite way of nurturing yourself? Because you guys have been in lockdown for a long time and, and not really been able to do the things you might normally do. So what's that been like for you? Well, it's a great question, Heidi, because, of course, what we know is that middle-class people have survived it better than working-class people in lots of different ways. So, you know, I'm a privileged middle-class white male, so it means I have a relatively pleasant house. You know, I have a job, if you want to call it a job, where I can just do online and, you know, I can still run courses. So a lot of middle-class people can still do their things from their own homes. They've got Mm -hmm. gardens and so on and so on. So, you know, it's been tricky, but... um, uh, sad really but for people who don't have that uh, it's been terrible it's been absolutely terrible Um, you know I was talking to somebody the other day who his son has saved up all this money to set up his business cafe business that he was so proud of and just got it going two months later COVID hit and that was that and he lost all his money and everything so I mean the tragedies the Mm. tragedies out there but, you know, I haven't been hit by any tragedies. Yeah. You know, I've known a few people that have, have died, but not closely. Mm. Um, I haven't lost my, you know. So so for me, I, I just constantly remind myself of my privileged position and how lucky I am. Yeah. Um, but the side of me that um, struggles is my anger, of course, that mm. you know, um, it's been a horrible thing, you know, and that why do we have to live in a in a world where viruses and there are millions of the bloody things um we're just living in a world of all these things that can just kill you and maim you and hurt you and mm. on, on a massive scale and you yeah. think of what's going on in the poorer countries like brazil and india and africa it's oh it's just awful it's just awful i mean that's for me so it's not my personally it's been annoying and i can't fly and i can't come see all you wonderful people yes Mm. of course i've had all of that but um the tragedy the terrible Mm. suffering this has caused to people is just unbelievable it's just almost intolerable when you if you sit and really think about it it's just awful yeah so i guess in that how do you manage that for yourself what sort of do you have particular daily practices i know when you were over here one time you you will do a breathing practice daily um what sort of things do you do well we overwhelm you yeah, it's a great question. So we're doing some series of practices which we're hoping to be made available shortly and we're going to do a bit of research on them, which is what we call energizing practices, where it's not so much f- focusing, because you remember there's two elements. If you only focus on suffering and you don't focus on uh, the desire to, to, to relieve suffering, mm. uh, and you get into trouble. I mean, as you know, Haley, that the basic Buddhist position isn't loving kindness in the sense of the uh, Western view of loving. It's may all beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. So that is your motivational focus. May we find ways to relieve suffering. May we find ways to deal with suffering. May we find ways to bring more justice to the world. May we find ways to bring enlightenment to the world. So you're focusing. So these meditations are really on how to, may we find a way to relieve, not 
just sitting, oh, isn't it terrible? Isn't it terrible? I mean, that happens, right? So we're doing energizing practices now where we teach people how to do breathing practices with music. And you just imagine breathing out compassion into the world and you just focus mm. on a friendly face and a real wish. May this end. Wouldn't this be great? May this end. May we all come together to create a compassionate world where all those wonderful and of course, there are many billions of people around the world who want <laughs> greater fairness, that we could all yeah. come together and build a compassionate society. So I think quite what's quite important is that when you're doing your meditations, um, and although it's called loving kindness, it really is benevolence, that yeah. you're focusing on this real wish um, for the suffering to end and yeah. the real wish to think about any ways you can do to be helpful as opposed to if you just focus on, oh, God, isn't it awful, uh, that will burn you out. Yeah. Yeah. So that's new and, and stuff that you're going to kind of yeah. bring out. Launch on the world. Launch yeah, the world. launch into the world. That's great. Because we're looking at using music now as, as soothing or energising. And I think... Yeah. I think partly we the, the way we've, or say we, you know, I should take responsibility, have talked about it because in terms of the soothing system, people have got a little bit caught up in that compassion is all about soothing. Well, it can be, and it is important to train that system, mm -hmm. like training fitness, but how you use it, right, yeah. that's another matter. So, I mean, if you think about, you know, somebody running towards a fire to save you, to save somebody or running away from it, your, your, your nervous system is going to be pretty similar. Your sympathetic yeah. reaction is going to be up. You're going to be breathing. Your heart rate's up. But your motive will be very different. So compassion is not always about soothing. Sometimes it's about activation and, and taking yeah. actions um, and how we do that. So that's why we talk a lot about compassionate courage, as you know. But yeah. uh, So soothing will help you and ground you, of course, and it will help develop your mind and all kinds of stuff. But it's like getting fit will help you. But how you use your fitness, whether it's mm. to climb a mountain or run a marathon or whatever, that's another matter. Yeah. Well, I look forward to hearing more about that as well. So can I ask, what would be one piece of advice that you would share with our listeners in terms of taking care of their own well-being as helping professionals? Well, I think you you, you know you yourself done a lot of work on this. Firstly, recognizing where your pressure points are. You know, what is it that pulls you away from your own well-being? What is it that's pulling you away? Are you getting exhausted? Are you working too long? Are you are you feeling too responsible for your clients? Are you too much of a rescuer? Um, are you constantly worried you don't know enough or you're getting it wrong? Uh, is it clients that get angry with you that kind of throw you a little bit? Uh, is it the clients that seem to fall into hopelessness and get stuck? You kind of like they're walking in mud, you know. So working out your own areas which put pressure on you and then making a decision about how you would like to deal with that, right? See it as an issue. Uh, don't over-identify with it and say, oh, that's interesting. Okay, so there we are. Then these clients I find a little bit tricky. Oh, I wonder what would help me. So always asking the question, okay, I wonder what would help me with this one then? And mm -hmm. try to be playful if you can, okay? Um, you know, sometimes people can get, uh, um, have difficulties with clients that are very angry, for example, or very critical of the therapist. Oh, that's interesting, right? So I wonder what would help me with that then? How could I, you know, maybe if I use some mentalizing questions about inviting them to think about how they're impacting on me, you know, <laughs> or whatever. So 
So yeah, there are techniques that we can learn that will help us with different things. Um, and the other thing is, of course, as we all know, is clients will stir you up, and this is called counter-transference, and uh, it's really quite useful. If you, if, This is why I think uh, psychodynamic training is very helpful because you are not a neutral agent. Mm. When you go into that room, what's going on in your patient's mind will be s- setting off switches in your own, right? Yeah. If there's a lot of stuff you haven't dealt with yourself, that can make life tricky for you. And that's why in the psychodynamic therapies, they suggested therapists should have therapy. I'm not sure about that so much, but certainly as you know, you've been doing James Bennett Levy and others practicing what you use, making sure you can use it on yourself, right? Because yeah. if you can't, then you maybe doing it with cards is not so good, is it really? Yeah. Um, so finding your own pressure points, finding the areas where you think you're being pulled away finding the areas where you think actually you're getting pulled in, you're having emotional reactions that you find very distressful or distressing, standing back from that, not getting up, not shaming or blaming yourself, but just take that as an opportunity for growth. That's interesting. Okay. And then move on. I mean, one of my big issues when I was young, I could never discharge patients. I I always have a worry. Oh, don't worry, don't worry. I could never face the fact of saying, no, no, you know, you know, at this we're going to finish the therapy. Oh, please, please don't. Um, so I I had to work with that with my my supervisors about what that was about and yeah. my fear of not being good enough and disappointing them and letting them go and failing yeah. them and all that stuff. So yeah. this is why I think if you have colleagues around you or supervisors around you, which will give you an opportunity to talk about what's coming up for you in your therapy with your client and to see that as an opportunity for growth development and curiosity into your own mind um, that can be very helpful Mm. Um, so I remember my supervisor saying oh well you don't want to give up your clients because you were sent to boarding school you thought people gave up on you and I thought shit (laughs) (laughs) true you know so um So again, though, it's that willingness, isn't it, to go close to our own stuff is to go, well, actually, wow, okay, maybe that, yeah, that's that's my own stuff that's getting in the way because we don't get to leave our humanness at the door when we go and sit in the therapist chair. Like it all comes with us, doesn't it? Everything we've experienced, every, every conversation we've had, every experience we've had, everything we've felt comes with us into the room. And like you say, clients can trigger that in you. They can, right? And the key thing, right, and you've said this so many times, is don't over-identify with it. Stand back from that. Oh, that's interesting. So, you know, I was very lucky because the, the person that was supervising me was just lovely. She was um, very, very Freudian, but she was just fantastic. And she would say in what I adopted from her, always a very friendly way, right? Mm. Okay, so she, she was sort of say, yeah, well, of course, why not? You were like everybody else, aren't you? Yeah. So, yes, I suppose so. Yeah, makes sense. We're human beings, yeah. you know. But people get really upset about that. You know, they override that. Oh, I shouldn't be like that. I want to No, no, it's, it's just the way it is. Just yeah. see it as a really fascinating thing that you're responding. Your counter-transference in the therapy is not to do to other people that you felt were done to you. And so yeah. that. that bringing your stuff in and that might not be so helpful to your clients right it's not to blame anybody or shame anybody it's just interesting so you might think about what you want to do and 
how you cope with the feelings when your clients are pushing back at that and they yeah. don't want to leave the nest, you know. So, so again, that awareness, curiosity, not over-identifying and then asking yourself, yes. what would be helpful for me in this? That's right, that's right. Uh, what do I need? And I always think of that in terms of what, what do I need? What would be helpful in terms of my internal resources? Yeah. And what would be helpful in terms of external resources? Very much so. Yeah. Like, can I can I go connect with other people to talk about this? Can I get supervision? What do I need? And and then the internal stuff around how can I be with myself in a way that is gentle and compassionate and not yeah. shaming and blaming. And yeah. playful. Yeah. I mean, we're I'm pushing this much more now. This be playful with yourself. Yeah. You know, just be <laughs> so you get this stuff inside of you. And at the time, it seems very intense, but if you can just settle back a little bit and think, oh, shit. <laughs> Here we go again. <laughs> Here we go again. Okay. That play, if you can get that, you know, it, 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 it takes time maybe, but just loosening yeah. up, you know, because yeah. playfulness will loosen you up. But when you're forcing and pushing and worrying, it tightens it up. Yeah. So we talk a lot now about loosening versus tightening. Uh, around these processes um, but we, when we're in the threat system threat system is a tight it tightens you up yeah narrows your attention and it focuses you down yeah. as opposed to opening you up so it's practice 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 with all this isn't it, it is. and then practice some more it is it is so i wanted to ask you the question if you could meet the paul gilbert of the future what do you think your future self would say to you <laughs> what the fuck was that all about? <laughs> I don't know. It's a good, what a wonderful question. Um, I'm I'm hoping that it would just say, well, you did the best you can and um, enjoy your retirement wherever that happens to be in the next life. So, yeah, I mean, it's a great question, really. Um, yeah, I, I hope. My um would just say it's fine, you know, you, you've done what you can and time to move on. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, nice. But, and then be playful, you know, with yeah. him with his with his walking stick and having gone bored, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know you'll ever go bald, Paul, will you? Oh God. It's one of my things, yeah. They like the idea. You're so great, a terrible, right ahead of her. Yeah, when you're young and running around then when you get old you're getting out even getting out of bed is hurt you think who on earth invented these things called bodies they're terrible yeah. so so as we age and, and now i'm getting older um i think bringing compassion to that is really important as well isn't it yeah i mean the thing is look you know if you're a Jungian, you'd say well all life is a narrative all life is a story every human being has written a book well, they haven't written a book, but they've lived a book. They've lived as a set of characters in a story. There's a, every life is a story. And if you see it as every life is a story, uh, it's really kind of interesting where this is my story. And uh, if somebody else's book, their story will be different and they'll have different characters and different plots and subplots and different events and uh-huh. ups and downs. But, you know, I've lived this story. This is the story of Paul Gilbert, good and bad. And that's that's, that's all it is now. Oh, I like that. As you're saying that, I'm thinking about my story and I'm like, plot twist. <laughs> there was a few of those along the way. Yeah. Um, the the, yeah, the yeah, theme the of the plot. book changed somewhat as it was written, which is um, yeah. which is good. 
it's, it's a fascinating story. It's a story of a human being. Yeah. You know, it's, DNA created you in this context, created you, and this is the story that has unfolded. And uh, it's, yeah. Mm. Oh, thank you, Paul. This has just been a delight. It's been really, really lovely chatting with you. And I really hope that, you know, the world opens up a bit more um, sometime soon so that we can welcome you and Jean back to Australia. In the meantime, if people do want to get in touch with you, Where's the best way for them to kind of engage with your work? I know there's the Compassionate Mind Foundation UK website that's got some amazing resources on it. Um, where would be the, the best way of people to contact you? Yes, you can do that through contact. So on the foundation, I have to be a little bit careful because as you can imagine, they can get flooded with mm. requests for supervision, all kinds of things. Um, so just on the website, there's a thing called um, contact and you just... Um, say, you know, can I get in contact with Paul? I've got to be a little bit careful because... Absolutely. You know, we get quite a lot of... Um, which is lovely, of course. It's better to be wanted than not, isn't it? <laughs> well, you're, you're a very busy man. But, very uh, yeah. busy man. But so the Compassionate Mind Foundation UK website is the best yeah, yeah, place yeah. to go. And like I said, full of great resources. So that's great. Again, thank you so much, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your generosity of time and again for developing compassion-focused therapy. Well, Haley, and thank you for doing what you're doing because this is wonderful uh, work, what you're doing, you know, getting it out there and giving therapists an opportunity to hear it in a slightly different way, perhaps. Uh, so that's terrific. And uh, But as I say, you know, that it's going to cost you when we come. <laughs> <laughs> Time with you is my pleasure, Paul. No worries <laughs> at all. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Haley. Bye. Thank you for sharing this time with me today. I hope your time here was helpful and supportive. If there has been something in this episode that you have found helpful, I invite you to share it with another person you think might benefit. I'd also love it if you'd like to leave a review wherever you tune in. Reviews really help to increase awareness of podcasts, meaning I can spread helpful information more widely. All reviews are welcome and much appreciated, as I know they take time out of your day. If you'd like to be notified when the next episode airs, please use the link in the show notes to join my mailing list. Music and editing by Nissa Ray. Thanks, Nissa. I wish you all well in your relationship with yourself and may you go well and go gently.